We've been in um, Mark 13. In this passage concerning the tribulation period, in verse 14 it talks about the abomination of desolation. And then through these next verses we saw that he's speaking in the context of Judea, which is in Israel, and in context of uh, Jewishness because he's, he talks about um, the Sabbath, you know, in the parallel passage. And he says, in those days there will be this tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. We know that that's a time of God dealing with the Jewish nation for the final seven years. And then he said in verse 20, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. And so, uh, as we look at this this morning, we want to, I've already told you the elect group, I believe, is uh, Israel. And we'll look at election and see what well, does it mean to help us identify who's being spoken of in this particular passage. So then, what about election? What does it mean? There are many who view the doctrine of election as one-dimensional or monolithic or having only one meaning or function in Scripture. But the concept of election or choosing by God is used several ways in Scripture, depending upon the context in which it is used. It has a broader meaning that must be determined by the context of its usage. The basic word elect is eklektos, which means picked out or chosen. And then there's a verb form, which is to choose or choosing. It's used in several different ways that we'll look at. One way in which it's used is in regard to individuals. And in regard to individuals, God elects or chooses some individuals for a specific purpose. If we look at Romans 9, we'll start there. And we'll be coming back and looking at some parts of this passage, but we'll just look here and read Romans 9, 1 through 13. Paul, beginning to talk about Israel in these next three chapters, 9, 10, 11, he says, I tell, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, which brethren? My countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Amen, Paul. He says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, and a parenthesis here, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. 
It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So here we see uh, in this passage the calling of God of Jacob for a particular purpose. He says uh, it's not that one's done any good or evil, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but him who calls. So it wasn't based on anything that Jacob or Esau did, but it was based on the choice of God for the purpose of God. So we have to uh, ask, well, what is the purpose that he called Jacob for? And many people would look at that and say, well, he elected Jacob for salvation. And that's what what the extent of it is, you know. But that's not the case. Obviously, Jacob was saved. But that's not the purpose for which God elected him. In this instance, he was choosing him in the line of the Messiah. He was choosing him through his descendants, the Messiah was going to come. And we see this, his choosing of men in this this vein uh, throughout the Old Testament until Jesus comes. Now we saw it in, uh, of course, in Adam's descendants, in Seth, um, in Noah's sons, you know, came from Shem, uh, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then not the firstborn, as Jacob wasn't the firstborn, but comes down through Judah, and then we get into the line of David, and it comes on down. To, and all these men were chosen for this purpose, that God might bring his Messiah into the world. So this purpose, one purpose for Israel being chosen and Judah, or I'm sorry, Jacob being Israel, uh, renamed, um, one purpose is to bring forth the Messiah. Another purpose is to receive and preserve the word of God. We see this in um, Romans chapter 3. Another is to build a nation of his own choosing. And probably the greatest purpose, you know, after bringing the Messiah into the world, is to bless all the families of the earth through these men that are chosen. starts with Abraham. You're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That was God's purpose in choosing them. And so we see this choosing for a specific purpose in the Old Testament with various individuals. Uh, we met, I mentioned Noah in uh, Genesis 6 and 8. It says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he talks about the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. We can see uh, Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord in that he responds to God. He walks with God. We see it in Abraham in Genesis 15:6. He believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Uh, you know, in all these passages, it doesn't use the word elect or choose, but that's what's going on uh, with these men. These men are chosen of God. Uh, Jacob, chapter uh, Genesis 25:23 says, The Lord said to her, as we read in, uh, quoted in Romans, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. So it's not just about Jacob and Esau. It's about these nations, these peoples that are being born in this one individual. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. He's choosing Jacob for this purpose over Esau. And who can say 
that God cannot choose who he wants for a specific purpose to bring about a specific end. And he does that well throughout Scripture. Genesis 45.5, in Joseph, he says, Now do not therefore be grieved, this is Joseph speaking, or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph was chosen for this purpose, that he'd be taken to Egypt as a slave and put in prison, and then when he was released, that he would preserve the nation of Israel. He wasn't chosen in the line of the Messiah. That went to Judah. He was chosen for a purpose. Judah was chosen for a different purpose. Uh, Moses chosen, Exodus 3.10, Come now, therefore, the Lord speaking, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses was chosen for this. Nobody else was picked that he might do this. And you remember Moses said, well, I can't talk. And, you know, I don't think I should go. Who am I that I should go? I think you should pick somebody else. And so the Lord altered it a little bit. And he said, well, Aaron talks good. He'll be your spokesperson. And you'll be God to him. Like, you know, you're going to be speaking for God to Pharaoh. And he said, you'll be like God. You'll be putting my words in Aaron's mouth just as I'm going to put my words in your mouth, in your mind. So Moses, Joshua was chosen. In uh, Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. He was chosen to lead the people into the land of promise. And you'll find this you know, numerous places within uh, the book of Joshua. We find that David was chosen, 1 Samuel 13, 14. Uh, speaking, Samuel speaking to Saul, and he says, Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So who is he talking about? He's, he's found David. He's ready to anoint David. You know, Saul was chosen as the king over Israel. But he failed, and his kingdom was removed from him and taken away. But not so with David. In Psalm 89, and this whole whole psalm has some uh, tremendous passages in it concerning this um, choosing. In Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, the Lord says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. David is chosen as the one through whom the Messiah would come and through whom a kingdom would be established that would last forever through his descendants, his seed. So I made a covenant with my chosen, this covenant with David. Psalm 89.20, he says, I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him. We know the anointing, the anointing, uh, the anointed one. That's the word Messiah. That word is used of a number of different people in the Old Testament. Uh, It's used of um, many of the uh, prophets of the Lord were anointed by the Lord. It's used of the uh, people of the Old Testament, but it's also used of the Persian king Cyrus. 
in uh, Isaiah 45.1, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I've held, to subdue nations before him, loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double door, so that the gates will not be shut. Cyrus was chosen. And this is some 150 years before his birth. He's named specifically by God. And when he comes into the world, then here's Cyrus. And, and he's chosen for what? To subdue nations, loose the armor of kings, open before him double doors so the gates will not be shut. And he was chosen to uh, provide the release for Israel from Babylon to go back to the land of Israel. So we find Isaiah, Daniel, all the prophets were chosen for the purpose of speaking to his people and to the other nations around. Now, the apostles were chosen. John fifteen sixteen. Jesus speaking to the twelve, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Now, many times we take this and we apply it to ourselves. But he's speaking specifically to these men. You did not choose me, but I chose you. They didn't choose him and say, we're going to be your apostles. He came and chose them individually. He called them. He said, come and follow me. Um, but could they have said, eh, I don't think I want to do that. They could have. So they did choose him. But he was calling out to them. He was choosing them. He called them. Later, he chose them. And so he tells them here, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. He's ordaining them for a purpose that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And we might see ourselves in this situation and maybe find application in this to ourselves, but he's not speaking of us. He's speaking of those men that he chose, those 12, including, you know who, Judas. Now, Judas did not carry out this bearing of fruit. He bore fruit, but it wasn't good fruit. <laughs> Uh, and then we find out of time, Paul in Acts 9.15, uh, uh, the Lord sends Ananias to Paul to pray for him so that he'd regain his sight. And the Lord says um, to him, to Ananias, go before he is, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine. Paul was chosen to bear my name before Gentile kings and the children of Israel. So here's Paul being chosen. He's elect for this purpose. Right. Now, choosing is not necessarily directly related to uh, salvation. No doubt, most all the people who were chosen were saved, are saved, but not exclusively. God chose some people for other purposes. Well, the main chosen one, you already know, is the Messiah, the the Anointed One, capital T H E. You know, uh, these other guys were anointed; they were uh, anointed by God for a reason, for a purpose. But then the Messiah comes along. He is the Anointed One, one who is given the Spirit without measure. In Isaiah chapter forty-two, one through four, we find uh, the Father, God. Well, the Spirit could be involved too. Um, 
speaking of the Messiah who's to come, he says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one. He's set apart from all others. He's the, he's the, the Father's elect one. In whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And then he says, he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. So these verses, the two, two through four, are quoted by Matthew in chapter 12. And he says this is so that this might be fulfilled. This is why Jesus came. So Jesus, we find, is the elect, the chosen, the choice one, the chosen one, the elect of God. Um, Psalm 2.2, we find him, the Lord speaking, saying, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. And this is what they say, you know, and that psalm goes on to talk about rebellion against the Lord. We see this chosen one spoken of in Isaiah 53. We see Psalm 110, where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, so Jesus is the anointed, the Messiah, but it's, it's not, the term is not used only of him. It's used of King Saul, King Saul, <laughs> David. Jacob, Moses, Cyrus, this pagan king. But of course, Jesus is the preeminent anointed of the Father in whom all the fullness of God dwells bodily. And that is now. Paul's writing after the resurrection and he says, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. So uh, Jesus still having that resurrected body and the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him. Colossians 2.9 so this choosing for a purpose does not entail salvation per se, although most of the individuals spoken of as chosen are no doubt saved. This is not exclusive, however. This does not preclude others from being saved by faith in the Word of God. Even though these men are chosen and saved, that doesn't mean everybody else is eliminated. When God chose Jacob, he wasn't condemning Esau. He was saying, I'm going to bring my line through Jacob. He was choosing Jacob over Esau for that purpose, but Esau could have been saved. He could have come to the Lord. And any others, you know, who were not chosen per se directly in, in speech. Salvation was open to all, just as it is today. If men repent of their sins, come to him, believe in him, trust in him. So the election or choosing of Israel for God's purpose does not mean that each individual Israeli was saved. Each would be saved by placing their faith in God for the salvation he promised. Salvation is individual, not corporate. And we'll see Israel was chosen by God as a nation, but that didn't mean everybody that was an Israeli is saved. And Paul is pointing that out in Romans 9. Not everyone who is of, who, uh, is of Israel is Israel. They're not saved necessarily. If someone is chosen for a specific limited purpose of God, it excludes others from fulfilling that purpose, but it does not exclude others from the promise of salvation. For example, Jesus chose 12 to be his apostles. Right. These were, there were 12 spots available. 
And Jesus filled all twelve with the men that he chose. No one else could appoint themselves an apostle. Jesus sovereignly chose the men he wanted to fill those positions. Paul was chosen to carry the gospel in addition to the twelve, and he was called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It was a special choosing. Others went with Paul to the Gentile world, and others went to the Gentiles as part of the Great Commission, but Paul was chosen as the apostle to the Gentiles. He speaks of this in Galatians 2, 7, and 8. He says, um, speaking of when he went up to talk to the others in Jerusalem, he says, On the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. So Paul was chosen for this specific purpose of being an apostle to the Gentiles. And no one else was chosen for that spot. So uh, if, if someone's chosen for a, a specific limited purpose of God, it excludes others from fulfilling that purpose. I can't say, well, I was chosen to be in the Messianic line. I wasn't. But many were saved through his ministry, Paul's ministry, and they entered into the elect company. But being chosen or elect for a purpose was not a choosing to salvation to the exclusion of others. Because one was chosen and were saved as well, it did not mean others could not be saved. And the example of Jacob and Esau. No doubt we don't know that Esau was saved, but we do not know that he was not. We're not given that information. No doubt, 11 of the 12 apostles were saved through faith in the Lord Jesus, but one was not. In John 17:12, Jesus said, while I was, he's praying to the Father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So this one he chose to be an apostle was lost. He was a special case, you know, but perdition, son of perdition or destruction is what he's called. In Mark 14, 21, uh, Jesus said, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Some people speculate and they say, well, Judas might have been saved later before he committed suicide or something. But, Jesus wouldn't be saying it would be better for him if he'd never been born, if that were the case. And then in John 6, 70, Jesus, speaking to this crowd, said, well, no, he's speaking to the apostles at this point. He said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He chose him for a specific purpose, not a good purpose. And it was not preordained that Judas would do that, but, of course, the Lord knows he's he has foreknowledge of all things. And foreknowledge is another thing that works in with these statements of election. We'll see a scripture or two concerning that. Uh, the devil, a devil is a false accuser or a slanderer. That's what he's saying about Judas in that passage. Uh, but there's no reason for us to think that Jesus, uh, Judas could not have been saved had he appropriately responded to the Lord in repentance and humility but he did not. I think he could have been restored as Peter was after Peter denied the Lord Jesus if he had done appropriately, if he'd chosen correctly. 
Well, the second way in which individuals are elect, so you know, if they're elect for a specific purpose, a special purpose, uh, the second way in which they're elect is in salvation. That is, those who are saved are called elect or chosen. I think a good case can be made for group election, that is, Israel or the church. But individual believers are elect by virtue of being in the elect group or ultimately in the elect one. There is only one who is truly elect, and all others are elect by benefit of their relationship to him, not anything of themselves. They weren't chosen for anything of themselves. They're chosen in him, as we see in in Ephesians. We can know that we are elect in the Lord Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, he speaks of us coming to him, Jesus, as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, you're built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. We can know we're a part of that living house, that structure. We're in he who is elect. He's the living stone. We're built up as living stones in him. In Ephesians chapter 1, he speaks about this uh, choosing of us. And um, I have something about it here later as well, but let's look at it now. Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul says, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, saints, that's people who are chosen, people who are elect, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, You know, it's that phrase, in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in him, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. There's a lot of in hymns and in Christ and in the beloveds here. And I think we misinterpret this when we don't take those things into account. In verse 4, we could, many people read, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world. Does that sound right? Just as he chose us before the foundation of the world. That's not what it says. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. We're chosen in Him. God's foreknowledge. He knows everyone who is His and everyone who will be His. But we're chosen in Him. We're not chosen as of our own selves. In other words, if we're in Him, we're part of the elect. We're part of the chosen. 
And we see it you know, throughout this passage. We're in the Beloved. We're blessed in Christ. We're, we have, we're, we're seated in the heavenlies in Christ. Not by ourselves. We're there in Him. You know, as God sees it. So, it's important that we take that into account. So the question would be, well, you know, we'll talk about this. And well, how do I get in Him? We want to get in Him, right? <laughs> and I trust that you all are in Him. Um, but individual believers, you know, we talked about is I, I think group election is is there's a good argument to be made for that. But individual individual believers are referred to as the elect, like in Romans sixteen thirteen, Paul writes and says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. So he's saying he's elect. Rufus is elect, but we don't know. Was that for a purpose? We're not given any information. Was you know, Rufus did he have some special place, you know, in Rome, in the church there in Rome and so forth. But individuals are referred to as elect and we can refer to ourselves as the elect if we're in him. So we'll talk about how this election functions uh, hopefully in a little while if we have time. For now, let it suffice that those who are in Christ Jesus are elect, chosen in him, not in themselves. So individual election may refer to a choosing for a specific purpose, which may apply only to an individual to the exclusion of others, certain role, or it may apply to salvation, which is a possibility for anyone. If we don't see this distinction, then we may be confused about election. There's a, a definite distinction that can be made there. Now, secondly, election, you know, that's the individuals. It, secondly, election also applies to groups. In fact, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says it, when referring to election, is always, and they say with one exception, Romans 9.11, it's always related to community and thus has close affinity with the Old Testament teachings upon the privileged position of Israel as the chosen, selected race, people, nation. In other words, election is primarily of group people groups rather than individuals. And I think Romans 9-11, an argument can be made there that he's talking about a nation and not just that single individual of Jacob because of what that all, the whole thing entails. So groups are spoken spoken of as elect in Scripture. Um, first angels. First Timothy 5.21, Paul says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing in partiality. So the chosen angels. You can substitute those terms. Elect and chosen are translated different ways. A lot of times when you read choose, it's going to be the same word that's used as elect. So there are the elect angels, which means that there are some angels that are not elect. And we would, of course, think of them as the fallen angels. They're not, not chosen. Uh, the second group that is definitely spoken of as being chosen in Scripture, and you're familiar with it, is Israel. I mean, everybody knows of them as the chosen people, even the ones who don't believe that they're the chosen people, will call them the chosen people. And Jews themselves many times will say, we wish God would choose someone else because, you know, the way they've suffered and the things that have happened to them throughout history. Maybe we could choose somebody else for a while, you know. <laughs> um, 
But, of course, the things that fell upon them were due to their own abandonment, forsaking of their God. Well, in Israel, Isaiah 65, 9, the Lord says, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah and heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it and my servants shall dwell there. So he's speaking of a future time, a future kingdom, and he calls Israel his elect. Isaiah 45, 4, he says, For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect. I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Now, there's no controversy among scholars, teachers, pastors, as far as I know about Israel being the elect in the Old Testament. But there is controversy about whether they are still the elect of God or not. And some people reject that notion entirely because they say, well, God, God's given up on them. And now the church has taken over that role. And so uh, we'll see some about that also in more detail. But, but definitely he calls them the elect in the Old Testament, right? And he's talking about Israel, the nation, not particular individuals. There were individuals who were saved within Israel. They would be elect in a special sense, a sense more like we would talk about with uh, the New Testament. I mean, uh, the church is a little different than Israel in being elect, and we'll see that the church is also a group that is elect or chosen. church is a little bit Israel because, uh, different than Israel because everybody that's in the church, the true church, is elect or saved. Now, there, there's a visible church, and everybody in that is not <laughs> Elect or saved. So that's similar to Israel, right? Because you see the nation and some some within the nation. But in the true church, only the elect make up that body. There's nobody who's not chosen and elect. And in him, that's that's the definition, you know, of the church being in him. So quickly, a few other scriptures. Isaiah 44.1. uh says, Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Deuteronomy 4.37 Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, the fathers of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power. So he chose their descendants after them, which is the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 7 Verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Isn't that something if you were there to hear that? The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. And then he says, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. See, even if they were not doing as they should, he made a promise to the fathers. And he says, because he would keep the oath, would God ever break an oath that he had made? Because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And this point in Deuteronomy, they probably weren't doing really great. 
Isaiah 65:22. They shall not build and another inhabit, speaking of the future kingdom. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Deuteronomy 32, 9 and 10. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in a wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. That's the chosenness of Israel in God's sight. He keeps him as the apple of his eye, which means that's the pupil of his eye. So his eye is, you know, we're seeing his eyes on the sparrow. Yeah, his eye is on Israel. And uh, Zechariah 2.8 says the same thing. For, for thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You know, there's a, a scripture where Jesus calls, is, He says, speaks of Israel, my glory. And ultimately we're going to see that Fulfilled. That scripture will be fulfilled. Israel will be glorious and will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Uh, not exclusively, but we will see that. And then, uh, so we got angels, Israel, and then the church, of course, is chosen. First Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 4. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved, your election by God. You've been chosen by God. Paul writing to the Thessalonians here. Second Timothy 2.10, Paul writes Timothy and says, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So he may be speaking of the elect here that are yet to come to the Lord. I think he could be speaking of Israel here because Paul had such a burden for Israel and he, he talked of them as the elect as we'll see. I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation. So these people, this elect he's talking about, they don't yet know the Lord. And then uh, Romans 8.33, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's definitely referring to the church. Made up of Jewish and Gentile believers. Because Jesus is the elect one, those who are elect are elect by virtue of the fact of being in him, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says, You are a chosen generation. He's quoting that Old Testament passage. You're a chosen generation, elect, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, the church, chosen, elect. Now, the question is, does that mean Israel's no longer elect, no longer chosen? Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as the elect of God, an exhortation, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So this is what the elect of God, the church, are to do. 
Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. 1 Peter 5.13, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, probably referring to church in Rome. And so does Mark, my son. Second uh, John one one to to or the elder John to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth and not only I but also all those who have known the truth. Uh, some think that Paul's writing to a specific lady here, uh, named you know her name would be the elect, uh, some form of that that word. I think he's just writing to a church and he's using code language, you know. <laughs> Yeah, he's calling elect lady because, you know, if his treatise falls into the wrong hands, then, you know, it could be a problem. And then in Second John, we see something similar, 113. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. And so you got churches that are spoken of as female, elect ladies, your elect sister. So different congregations, different bodies. Uh, so that brings us back to our first question. Who is the elect in Mark 13, verses 20 through 22? It says, Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. So for those whom he chose to sake, whom he elected, you could interchange those. If, and uh, then he goes on to say, If anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. So, what elect are we talking about? Has Israel been completely abandoned by God? Have they been cast off? If Israel is the elect of God, why have they not been saved? Why were they not all saved if they were elect? And this is the question that Paul's beginning to try and answer. Well, he does answer it, but many people are confused about it. In Romans 9. And it carries on through 9, 10, and 11. But in, in Romans 9, 6 through 14, we read this earlier. It says, It's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. I think there were a lot of people questioning, saying, Well, Israel was, is the elect, and most of them didn't believe. There's only some that believed. What's the deal with that if they're elect? And Paul's saying, Well, not all of Israel. Not all, all Israel who, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Even in the days of Abraham there was only a certain one and his descendants who were chosen for a purpose. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, and here it's defined, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as a seed. Those who have the faith of Abraham, as Paul says in other places, they are the ones who are going to be saved. Not just those who are physical descendants of Abraham. It's individual salvation. And so they must have the faith of Abraham if they're going to be saved. And then he goes on to talk about this situation with uh, Jacob and Esau in that passage. Over in Romans 11, Paul answers this question directly. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I'm also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. There's that reference to foreknowledge. 
Uh, God knew them before, right? Israel. He didn't cast them away, those whom he knew previously. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There are Israelis in the church, Jews in the church that are believers. There are a remnant according to the election of grace, and they've been throughout history. And, and that portion of the church is growing by leaps and bounds in, in our present time. Um, and so these Jews are coming in. And, and you know the only way for a Jew to be saved, just like for a Christian, is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Repent of their sins and call upon Him. That's that's the only way for any person. But what about this oath that God made to the fathers? This promise that He made. So He says, If by grace it's no longer works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. And He tells us why. And we'll see that uh, in a bit, why they didn't obtain what they sought. Now, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we see the per- this particular purpose that God chose the nation of Israel for. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. They had the word of God other nations did not have. He says, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? That's the same question he's coming back to answer in 9 through 11. Uh, If they didn't believe, does that make the faithfulness of God without effect? No, because they have to receive by faith. And then if we look at Romans 9, 1 through 5 again, Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. You notice all this is present tense. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. There is the other purpose for which Israel was selected, who is overall the eternally blessed God. So even in Paul's day, this is after God would have rejected them and replaced them with the church. He says, to them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, all the promises of God. Relate to them. Romans 11 then, 11 and 12. Paul says, I say then, and you can read these chapters in their entirety, and you know they're good to read over and just think about and ponder because there's a lot, a lot there. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Speaking of Israel, certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, if everybody else is benefiting, 
by the gospel being spread and believing, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So Paul's saying it's not over. In verses 25 through 29 of Romans 11, he says, I, don't des- I do not desire, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So he's saying there's a time coming. The, the fullness of the Gentiles will be complete. All the Gentiles will come in that, have, that are going to come in. And then blindness in part that's happened to Israel will be removed. This is we're talking national Israel. We can't be talking church here because it wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> it says, and so all Israel will be saved at that point in time. All of Israel, everyone who's a Jew and Israeli will believe, and it's, it'll be when they see him coming. You know, they'll repent. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then he says this, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. They're not, they're not believers. They were persecuting the church. But, there's a, my but of God, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. This is after they would have been rejected. He's saying, no, they're beloved. Concerning election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That goes all the way back to the beginning. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And he's, in any context, he's speaking of Israel. We, we apply it to ourselves, and we can't apply it, but it's not about us directly. Uh, originally, it's about the nation of Israel. He's still got that purpose in mind for them, which he, he made an oath to the fathers concerning the kingdom of David all the way through. And that will be fulfilled. And then in Numbers 23:19 we see this. God, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So, uh, let's see if I can get through this last section. The covenants of God with Israel are, number one, exclusive. He made covenants with Israel. They're, first of all, exclusive. Only Israel is included in the covenants to Israel. No other nation has been chosen by God. They are the only chosen people as far as a people group or a nation. Uh, Other people can join them in the Old Testament if they want to. Other people could believe. Other people did believe and were saved. But only Israel had this special covenant relationship with God. Some people try to apply this to America now, you know, to the United States, that we have this covenant relationship with God. We don't. Only Israel is that people. Now, individuals, we can have be in the new covenant, we can have that covenant relationship with God. And during at least some of our history, that was there were a lot of people who... Uh, were taking advantage of that new covenant, and it affected all of uh, the society, all of America. Secondly, the content of these covenants with Israel, which are legal contracts, must be interpreted literally 
if they are to be fulfilled as originally given in the context of a particular people, the Jewish people, and a particular place, the land of Israel. They must be interpreted literally if they're going to be fulfilled. Since, as stated above, these covenants were made exclusively with Israel as an ethnic and national people, they must be fulfilled with them alone. This is not to say another entity, the church, could not participate in them under the new covenant, which we see in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. I'll let you read that, but it's talking about how you were strangers to the promises and then... Uh, God broke down that middle wall of partition, and we get included in the new covenant. Uh, Romans 11, 17 through 24, also about you know grafting in, grafting out of the olive olive trees. But that, but their fulfillment must take place as originally intended for God to keep that oath. Third, the covenants with God made made with Israel are eternal and not conditioned by time. The eternality of the covenants is stated variously as forever. Genesis 13:15. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. It's to Abraham. Exodus 32:13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, uh, Moses praying, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I've spoken of I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Second Samuel 23.5, David speaking, says, Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? And sometimes it's spoken of as forever and ever. Jeremiah 7.7 7, I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Jeremiah 25.5 They said, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Psalm 48.14 For this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. And sometimes it's spoken of as everlasting. Genesis 17, 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Speaking to Abraham. Also, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And it's also spoken of in Genesis seventeen nineteen, and then in Amos 9, verses 14 and 15, the Lord says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Hasn't happened yet. I think we're in that time frame where they won't be pulled up again. But in the past, they've been pulled up every time up until uh, modern times. And then fourthly, God's covenants with Israel are unconditional, which means their fulfillment is totally dependent upon God. Even though these covenants include conditional aspects, these aspects are not the basis by which the covenants will be fulfilled. 
They were allowed to occupy the land if they were obedient. They were scattered from the land if they were disobedient. But that does not negate the promise that comes that it will be they will be restored, uh, and that you know it's unconditional that the land will be theirs, Abraham and his descendants. While Israel's failure to meet the conditions within these covenants has resulted in divine discipline, the covenant promises cannot be abrogated, uh, disavowed, disannulled. Uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 11, For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you. Yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. And then in Romans again, uh, Romans 11, 11 through 15, we read about if they have they uh, stumbled that they should fall. In verse 13, he says, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are in my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, the Gentile nations, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Thus today there are two peoples chosen of God or the elect of God. And only one of these peoples is salvation from sin and the imparted righteousness of God found, and that is the church. But God still has a purpose for national Israel, and they are chosen for this purpose for the sake of the fathers, the patriarchs, and he will fulfill the promises made to them. In fact, we are seeing the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises concerning the last days and the future kingdom now in our time. There are some who deny that God still has a purpose for Israel. They believe that the church has replaced Israel or is the fulfillment of Israel or is the true Israel. You'll hear it different ways. Many of the promises made to Israel, for example, the new covenant, now apply to the church exclusively. And many of the other promises, for example, the kingdom age or the millennium, are allegorized or spiritualized and apply now to the church age, the kingdom of God on earth. Of course, this affects much understanding of the Bible and all scripture concerning the future and concerning prophecy. It affects much how people view Jewish people and Israel and much persecution has come upon them because of this idea that God has rejected them, that they are no longer his people. Um, You know, the church at times, I'd say the visible church, I can't imagine any true believers persecuting, you know, Jewish people. Uh, but there were times where, you know, they were uh, persecuted as Christ killers and, you know, just, well, we, we've seen it in our history. But this viewpoint also affects all scripture that concerns Israel and the church. Uh, for example, did the church begin in Acts 2? I think it did, but people who believe this say the church started with Adam and Eve, and the church has been throughout history, you know, and so it was found in Israel, but then it was, you know, they were the church, and now Jew and Gentile are the church. I don't think that's good biblical interpretation, as we talked about last week. 
So today and in the future, Israelites are saved on the same basis as the Gentiles, by faith in the Word of God and in the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. How then does a person, Jew or Gentile, become a part of the elect company? How do we get in Him? If the blessings are in Him, how do you become in Him? It is by faith in Christ Jesus, acknowledging Him as Savior and Lord, and this is the consistent testimony of the gospel of grace. Try to finish up here real quick because it's been about an hour. <laughs> Acts 16, Paul and Silas released from prison after the earthquake. It says, He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of God to him and to all who were in his house. And they, he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes. Immediately he and all his family were baptized. Romans chapter 10, sandwiched between 9 and 11. We find uh, Mo, uh, Paul writing about this gospel and how it's applied. And in verse 5 he says, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? You can't do those things. But what does it say, the righteousness of faith? It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is Jew or Gentile. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Earlier in the chapter, Paul says they didn't find the righteousness they sought because they sought it by works rather than by faith. And so works will not do it. Now, Romans chapter 9, last part of that, chapter 30 through 33. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You do not have to wait for the mystery of God electing you. You can choose to place your faith in Christ Jesus and enter into He who is the elect one. You can bow the knee to Him, confess to Him as Lord, and He will save you. We spoke last week about the open invitation that He gives to all men and women without exception. You know, John 3:16 through 18 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's no limits put upon that. You aren't born to be condemned or born to be saved. Whosoever will, if they will believe in him. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, um, 
that's how you you get in him. Romans 5, 1 and 2, which Tim mentioned last week, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We come to him by faith, and that's how we are in him. That's how we become in him. Uh, Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And then John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to these people that he fed, who wanted to be fed continually, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So he gives this promise, all the Father gives me will come to me, the one who comes to me I will no means, by no means cast out. Who does the Father give to Jesus? He gives him those who believe. Come to him today, and his promise is that he will receive you. You will not be rejected. The scripture will be fulfilled in you that you have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. For he knows all things, even the future, and all who believe in him. First Peter chapter 1, last, last scripture. First Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, he's writing to the elect ones, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. This foreknowledge is part of God's uh, knowledge about the elect. God has foreknowledge of all things. Uh, including the decisions of free people far into the future. And if you don't believe that, then you have to redefine this word foreknowledge in many modern translations and and many people who uh, don't believe in the freedom of man to choose and believe rather that, you know, you're either elect or not and you can't do anything about it. Uh, they redefine foreknowledge to mean foreordained, and you'll find that you know, translated something. But the word means to know ahead of time. Foreknowledge. If, it's, if you're going to be honest in translation, you have to translate it that way. But sometimes our theology, and it can happen, you know, on any anybody's side or basis. Sometimes our theology will affect our translation. And because, you know, well, I don't see how it could be unless God has already determined it, then foreknowledge must mean, for, or if he knows ahead of time, that must mean that he has ordained it. Some things 
God knows ahead of time because He has ordained them. But God knows all things ahead of time, no matter what they are, you know, whether He ordained them or not. And there are some, some things He did not ordain. He knew that they were going to happen. He included them in His plan, and He He circumvents them and brings them all to the fruition that He's desired for them to be. But He did not plan them and say this, you know, like the fall of man. He didn't. He knew that man would fall, but he didn't foreordain the fall of man as an example. So he goes on to sit here in First Peter, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's eternal security. You're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. It's not quite the same as perseverance of the saints. It has nothing to do with your perseverance. It has to do with God's keeping power over you if you've placed your faith in Him. And of course, it leads to you following the Lord and you know, carrying out the, the plan that He has you know, Paul talked about uh, in Philippians, if I can apprehend that for which he has apprehended me, and that's, you know, we're, we're all chosen for that. We're to apprehend. He's got the plan, you know. What he's apprehended us for is his purpose or his plan. And so we want to be apprehending that which he's apprehended us for. 